This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to Cybertraps Podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principal and author of the books School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I'm a former lead learner at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. So good morning there, Jethro. Good morning. How are you today? I am fine, thanks. And yourself? Doing very well. It's a great Monday to be with you. It is a beautiful Monday here, doing our usual transcontinental podcast. That's right. (laughs) So what are we teeing up today? Well, today we're talking about, is there any way to eliminate uh, cyberbullying and electronic harassment? And that is um, possibly the age-old question. Can we stop those behaviors in humanity? And can we stop them in humanity on the internet? <laughs> so, well, and, and the latter question, I think, is pretty definitively no. But we can, <laughs> we can, in fact, hopefully talk about some methods to minimize the problems and give teachers and parents some suggestions about things that they can do or things they should watch for uh, in this particular regard. 
Yeah, so let's start by talking about this Colorado Supreme Court striking down electronic harassment ban. Tell us about that. Well, this is the thing, obviously, that triggered today's topic. So this was sent to me by a friend, a professor in, in New York, I know, who saw this um, on the Volokh conspiracy, V-O-L-O-K-H conspiracy. They uh, do a terrific job covering legal developments around the country, particularly with respect to the Supreme Court. And in this particular article, they were summarizing a decision by the Colorado Supreme Court to strike down a portion of Colorado's anti-electronic harassment law. And we'll dig a little bit into why they did that as we go through the show. But the short answer is that they felt that the language that the Colorado legislature used was too broad from a First Amendment perspective. And there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah, let's uh, let's start walking through this. So first, let me just make sure I understand what you just said, that they said that the law banning online harassment was unconstitutional because of First Amendment issues. Well, to be perfectly accurate, they said a portion of the law. A portion, okay. Yes. So they're not striking down the entire anti-harassment or harassment. You see, we can have a whole debate about which of those it is, too. (laughs) I think East Coast is harassment and West Coast is harassment. I like that. That works for me. (laughs) In any case, the, the point was that the court was looking at each of the phrases and all of the terminology used by the Colorado legislature. And they concluded that one portion of the statute was simply not consistent with the First Amendment. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's talk about that then. So what are we talking about? Uh, uh, These are then speech-related crimes that relate to that. And, um, you know, we we do advocate for the First Amendment that people should be able to uh, have free speech, um, but we also recognize that there are certain limits. One that put people in harm's way, or um, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater that's not okay, but that is speech. Uh, that's the classic one. But you know, we're talking about cyberbullying, cyber harassment, and cyber stalking, and those fit into here, right? They do, in fact, fit into here. And that, that I think, is a great overview to provide people because as digital technology took off, really, you know, for all intents and purposes, from the late 1970s forward, when people got their hands on personal computers, there was a recognition that people were using electronic communication tools to say things to other people that fit the older definitions of bullying and harassment and even stalking. So over the 45 years or so since that um, change occurred, you're seeing more and more states try to adapt their laws to recognize that people are doing these things online as well as in the real world. And you know, also driven by the fact that online behaviors can have real world consequences in terms of emotional distress, body image, Uh, even self-harm of one kind or another, all the way up to suicide. So there are are very good reasons for legislatures to be trying to do this. But as you correctly pointed out, this is, some of this is classic speech, right? And this was precisely what the Colorado court was worried about. Yeah. And so I want to read part of the, um, part of the bill here. 
um, which is from the uh, the Reason.com, the Volok com conspiracy that you, you mentioned before. So it says um, section 18-9-111 parentheses 1 parentheses E states that a person commits harassment if with intent to harass, annoy, or alarm another person, he or she directly or indirectly initiates communication with the person or directs language towards another person anonymously or otherwise by telephone, blah, 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 all these different places, uh, in a manner intended to harass or threaten bodily injury or property damage or makes any comment, request, suggestion, or proposal by any of these things. Now, the to me, the idea of harass, annoy, or alarm, um, that that sounds too restrictive right there because uh, harassing, annoying, and alarming are three different things. <laughs> and, and things that, uh, you know, just in my text messages with my brothers might be, you know, <laughs> I should be careful then. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my siblings and I have a text chain that absolutely gets harassing at times. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, again, it's all about context and audience, right? Presumably our respective siblings know where the boundaries are yeah. or understand the context of what's taking place. And it's a very different situation if someone is receiving unwelcome messages. And we'll get into, you know, for instance, the impact that this is having on adolescent dating in a few mm -hmm. minutes. But, but it's interesting you point that out because what the Colorado court focused on was the specific phrase intent to harass, mm -hmm. which they felt was too broad because they were recognizing that in some instances, legitimate public debate or debate over public issues can in fact be intended to harass as part of that debate. Exactly. And, and that makes perfect sense to me that uh, if you're if you're not careful, this can quickly go into you're not allowed to disagree with anybody, and you can only support and say and affirm what they're saying instead of rather saying no, I don't agree with this, and I have a right to disagree with you on this. Right, and I think what the legislature in Colorado was trying to do was to get at the um, almost the politeness with mm -hmm. which that disagreement occurs, right? That they were really um, focusing on how the listener was receiving the language. And there, there's a lovely quote that was in that case from an earlier 1975 decision about harassment in general. And what the Colorado court said then is that speech is often provocative and challenging it may strike at prejudices and preconceptions and have profound unsettling effects. So someone could be unsettled by speech and feel that that is harassing or harassing. But <laughs> in reality, it's just part of this vigorous debate that the First Amendment is designed to protect. Yeah. And, and this is an area where, because of social media now, this is exacerbated way more than it ever has been in the past because you can send these messages or make these comments towards other people that you don't know they don't know you and nobody can tell with what intent you are saying the things that you're saying because it's all in text rather than somebody actually saying it to your face 
Exactly. Well, one of the problems we've been grappling with ever since online communication really kicked in is the stripping away of nuance, right? Mm-hmm. And, and emotion and context, all of these aspects of communication that we rely upon to get a sense of what the intent of the speech is. Now, obviously, as you and I both know, there are some instances of speech that are clearly intended to cause harm. So threats of physical safety, death threats, things like that, things that are beyond the pale in terms of First Amendment protection. Where so much of this gets complicated is that we've got in most states around the country, we've got legislatures trying to decide whether or not this should be a misdemeanor or a felony or potentially both. When people are using privately owned communication tools to engage in the conduct that the government is trying to regulate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's all kinds of interesting legal issues that arise here. What the courts are doing is looking at the extent to which the legislature has overreached in terms of its action, because the First Amendment only applies to governments and to their agents. So school principals and things like that, you are all covered by the restrictions of the First Amendment. But the First Amendment, and it can't be said often enough, does not apply to Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, what have you. Even though they look like public spaces, and actually many of those companies are bigger than some world governments, (laughs) they are not government actors and they're not government agents. So they, if they shut down speech, if they decide that what you or I are saying on their platform is unacceptable, they're entitled to do that. Yeah. Well, the challenge comes up here is when they shut down speech at the request of government agents, right? Oh, of course. Because that is the government saying this speech is not allowed. And that's where, let's say, for example, that my mayor here in Spokane that I know, she says something that I disagree with and I disagree with her on Twitter and that and that's where the conversation takes place. Let's say that a board member for Twitter lived in Spokane, which they don't, but let's say they did, then that she could go to that board member and say, this is this Jethro is harassing me and I don't like it and you need to shut him down. Her acting as an agent of the state by being the mayor and saying that is then the government clamping down on my speech. Whereas if if Twitter itself just said, oh, hey, that's not okay what you said to that random person, we're kicking you off. That's a different story, right? And the challenge is, is that none of us would have a record of my mayor going to the Twitter board member. And sometimes we don't know if there are influences pushing that, which is what a lot of people are concerned about with Twitter right now, for example. Right. I mean, those are those are always things that we need to watch out for and, and think through. To be fair, the Supreme Court's already begun to address this in the sense that it has held that politicians can't block you mm-hmm. on these social media platforms because that is an unconstitutional restriction on speech, your ability to interact with the uh, public figure on that platform. But backdoor stuff, 
Sure, that's a potential issue. Um, <laughs> sure, you know, great response. Could, well, what can I say? I mean, look, you know, anytime that you know someone like Jack Dorsey or Zuckerberg can walk into the Oval Office and and have chats with the president, you you legitimately have to ask what was the nature of that conversation, mm-hmm. given the speech implications yeah. that are involved there. Right? Yeah, they're so, huge. So these, they're, they're absolutely huge. But I think that starts to move us away from sort yes. of the core. Sorry, mess. apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. Believe me, that's, there are plenty of rabbit holes that we can dive down, which is obviously an appropriate reference for Easter. In any, <laughs> in any case, a couple of points that I wanted to make with respect to what we're discussing today. Um, we throw out these three terms, cyberbullying, cyber harassment, and cyber stalking, but it is good to understand sort of the distinctions among them. And it really has to do with, with scale. And so, you know, cyberbullying um, is the lowest level of, of these three misdemeanors slash felonies. Um, and it typically obviously involves using an electronic communication tool to bully someone, to make them feel bad, you know, whatever, whatever that may entail. Cyber harassment being in the East Coast, cyber harassment is the suggestion or the idea that that there's a pattern of behavior to the bullying, that it it extends over a period of time, it's more intense, a little more severe. And then cyber stalking is when that harassment gets to the point where it's inducing a feeling of physical fear or harm in the victim. And so, this is in broad strokes because all of the states handle this a little bit differently in terms of the language they use, the penalties, so on and so forth. But generally speaking, that is the ladder of misconduct that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's helpful in terms of giving people a framework. Uh, there are a couple of good resources online in our show notes and in the resources. Um, I would highlight uh the Find Law article on cyberbullying laws, which does a pretty good overview. It used to be that the National Coalition of State Legislatures had a terrific page, but they haven't updated it in 12 years. So I'm going to say that's a little out of date. A little bit. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) back to our topic. So the issue here with respect to these behaviors, um, there are many issues, but it's worth reminding people that these are global in nature. So one of the articles that I referenced in the show notes is uh, an initiative in Egypt to try to address this. I know there are similar things all over the world um, because every society that has access to any kind of social media, and this includes China, uh, even Russia, um, is experiencing these kinds of bullying and, and harassment issues online. So we're not unique in this. Yeah, and and they do happen, as I've said numerous times on this podcast and other places, that the last five years uh, that I was a principal, everything revolved around social media. There was always something, and it is nearly impossible to avoid it. As kids get phones younger and younger, as they get social media accounts younger and younger, then there is always some aspect of it that is there. And I think that this is a real issue, especially because as we've also said many times, we're learning this technology at the same time the kids are. So we don't really have a lot of great answers for them um, besides not using it, period, right? And that's and and that's a challenge because they're already using it and it's very hard to take it away once they do have it. So 
So that's not really the the greatest advice, even though it's advice we still give, <laughs> because uh, what do you do when you when they already have it and they are starting to experience this? And, you know, kids, I was, you know, at an elementary school and kids as young as first and second grade were we're seeing and experiencing this kind of stuff online. And it's, it's just tragic that that would happen. It really is. I, you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, in terms of how parents respond and, and what they can say, it's interesting that, um, you know, bullying, as you alluded to at the top of the show, is a phenomenon that's occurred, you know, throughout human history in one form or another, and certainly in schools. I mean, yeah. There's no great secret about that. And it can be very difficult. You know, the idea of not using social media or not using your phone is a little bit analogous to, you know, like wanting to not go to school because mm -hmm. you have to be in the same classroom as the kid who's bullying you. So, you know, I think that your experience as an elementary school principal or, or higher up as well hopefully gave you some insights in terms of how you dealt with these interpersonal things. I think the challenge with respect to social media, and I love your thoughts on this, is that it's not something that would necessarily happen in front of you. So yeah. you would, you might not even be aware <laughs> that, except the kids obviously in distress, yeah. you know, the victim. Yeah. yeah, some things. So that's a really important distinction because you can intervene uh, in a bullying, harassing, or stalking situation that's happening at school because you can see it actually happening with cyber issues. You're always dealing with it after the fact, you're always cleaning up the mess, which is a very different approach than being there and seeing it and stepping in and intervening. There've been many times where I have witnessed bullying or witnessed harassment and been able to step in and have a teaching moment in the moment, which is incredibly mm. powerful. And it's something that I actually remember. And I will say that most of the time when I see it, it's because the kids don't know that it's bad and therefore they they need to learn what's going on. Now, there are a lot of kids who do this when nobody is watching, when nobody can see what's happening. And that's that's even more challenging because then you're still doing cleanup. But the, the difference is, is that you're not in constant fear because it's coming from the thing that's always attached to you, which is your phone. And that's another big difference that if you know the bully has a class on this side of the school and you have a class on this side of the school, they can't touch you and you're fine and you can, you can not have stress. And, but if it's on your phone, you never know when that message is going to come or who it's going to come from or mm -hmm. anything like that. And so you get into this state of perpetual fear of what could be happening. That is very challenging for a kid to deal with. Now, one of the things that we talk about a lot is that this is a parent responsibility and that parents should be teaching their kids appropriately. And uh, schools are already doing a ton. But the, the sad truth is, is that we still have to take this as a teaching opportunity and teach. That's what we do in schools is we teach and we help kids learn. And that's what we need to do with this as well. And it really sucks. I'm not going to lie. But I don't think there's a way to get around it. No, there, there really probably is not. I I don't know if I've used this phrase um, on the podcast, but I know that I've, I've written about it a couple of times that what we really should consider this to be is a form of cloud bullying, mm -hmm. you know, very much like the image of Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, who kind of walks around with a rain cloud over his yep. head all the time. I think that's exactly what these kids are experiencing, that, that I love that 
that sense that you you describe of of not being able to get away from the potential problem right because i remember having incidents when i was a kid which was many millennia before digital technology (laughs) (laughs) and and you're absolutely right you know you could avoid places where you knew there might be a problem but that's much harder to do in social media and i think the other thing that parents really need to um, think about and and appreciate is the change in the potential audience for bullying of children so it's one thing you know in a physical sense if it's kind of a one-on-one or even a small group of people versus the victim Um, but in social media the number of observers of the bullying can be in the hundreds or even the thousands. And I think that that ramps up the potential emotional harm. So again, we're coming back to this idea of not necessarily saying, no, you can't use these devices, but encouraging parents in particular to do much more supervision Mm -hmm. of what's going on. Yeah, really, I think supervision is the answer because even even things that may seem like bullying or harassment to one person are not to another person. And Mm. that's part of the problem with the term bully or bullying is that it's not clearly defined and you can walk into any school and unless they have specifically taught it, every kid will have a different definition of what bullying is. And Mm. if you show examples, every kid will have a different opinion of whether or not that is bullying. So good ribbed, or good natured ribbing is different than bullying, but not everybody sees it that way. And if you're on the receiving end of that, you might not think that it's very good natured and you might be really bothered by it. And so part of the challenge is that it is so subjective and it's so Mm. dependent on what that person is feeling, which I imagine is probably part of why they took that intent to harass piece. So um, specifically in the Colorado Supreme court, because you, one, you can't judge somebody's intent without a lot more information than one single electronic communication, right? And right. so right. so that is challenging too. But the thing is, is because of the poor definition, we have such a hard time saying distinctly this is or this isn't. And once it gets to something that is clearly definable, then it's beyond bullying and then it's just aggression or whatever the case may be or threatening violence or whatever. Right. Yeah, no, that's all true. And I, I think where we're getting to is this idea that parents in particular, because they're you know ultimately responsible, need as much information as possible, not only about how their kids are using their devices, because you don't want your child to be a bully, ideally, mm-hmm. um, but also to better understand how their children are receiving the information and the communications that they see on social media, getting to know what the child's reaction is. So you have a better sense of how they might respond if someone starts saying things that could be upsetting. And I think one of the things that was interesting when I was looking through these topics is that's particularly important in the context of dating, mm-hmm. you know, because so much of that, that form of social development and interaction is now occurring through social media and it raises a whole host of new risk factors i think for young men and young women that parents really do need to be aware of one of the things that is in the show notes 
is that there was a University of Michigan study that was done in the fall of 2021 that identified three different kinds of harassing behavior in the context of dating you know, by adolescents. So you've got this general term of electronic harassment, that is to say sending unwanted or uh, inappropriate or um, potentially harmful messages. There's electronic coercion, which some people refer to as, uh, uh, was it? Um, electronic sexual uh, assault? Well, uh, there's electronic sexual assault, but there's also um, sexploitation. You know, this idea that you're going to solicit information from somebody and then use that to get more sexually explicit uh, material or even uh, sexual behaviors from somebody. And then this idea of electronic monitoring. So you've got a kid actually being basically a, a surveiller or a stalker of somebody electronically. And what I was startled about with respect to this study is that they were finding these behaviors kicking in as early as 12 which raises a host of issues about supervision, access to electronic devices, dating in general. And I'm yeah. laughing in part because, God, my parents were like, not until you're like, you're 18, then you can. <laughs> like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> yeah. they, were, they were really concerned about um, the old school dating issues uh, way back when. So, Yeah, so I've got to pause here for a second and talk about um, this movie, uh, Yes Day. Have you heard of that? I have not. Probably not. It's not surprising you haven't. It's a family type movie. And it's about... (laughs) You're not a family man, Fred. (laughs) Your kids are... Your your kids are grown up. (laughs) That's really the issue. So, anyway, your kids are grown up. So, you... Like, have you watched uh, Encanto or um, the Turning Red movie? Oh, no, they're on my list. I do yeah. want to watch them, but I haven't seen <laughs> Eventually them Eventually, you'll get there. Okay, so anyway, so this movie, uh, Yes Day, is about mom and dad are saying no to their kids all the time. And so the day they say, in order to deal with this, we're going to give you a Yes Day where we'll say yes to anything you want. Uh, but there are limits to that, and it's not everything. But anyway, the movie's about that. It's a cute movie. It's all well and good. Mm-hmm. Except okay. at one at one point, the, the part of the plot is that the daughter wants to go to a concert and the mom says, I'll take you to the concert. And she's like, I'm 14. I don't want to go with my mom. I want to go with my friends, um, which is ironically the same conversation I'm having with my 14 year old daughter this week. <laughs> so, not, not so ironically, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so at one point the, the, the mom the, or the daughter leaves her cell phone down on the side uh, on the table and the mom picks it up and reads it and sees the message that came through and the daughter gets all upset at the mom for reading her text messages. So right there, um, like in our family, my kids all know we read your text messages because we're helping you know how to communicate appropriately. And we have a staged release of when you can text different people. You can't text friends when you first learn how to text. You can only text mom and dad and your siblings and that's it. And we're, we do that intentionally to help them learn, right? And so she got all upset that her mom looked at her phone. But here's the thing. Her friend was saying, here's this boy and his friend that we're going to hook up with at the concert tonight. And so if the daughter, well, the daughter said that was a good point. She said, I can't control what so-and-so sends to me, which is true. However, as a good parent who's supervising, you should be able to have that conversation and talk about that. 
Mm-hmm. Now, plus girl- also explore the language that's being used, like how what's the definition of hookup that's being <laughs> exactly. And it was alluded to that it was a sexual encounter. And yeah. and this is the point where this this if a friend is sending you this thing saying we're going to hook up at the concert with these two boys, um, is that coercion? Is that electronic right. harassment? what what is the deal there and, and how how do you know where that line is and that's that's where supervision is so important that you've got to be able to talk about these things and say it's not okay for you to go hook up with guys at a concert that you don't know that's why you don't get a go because this is what you're going to do there or what your friend thinks that you're going to do and that's not okay either and being able to have those conversations and say this is what's appropriate in our family and what isn't that's really, really interesting. Well, now I'll have to add that to the yeah. list. <laughs> well, no, I, I think you're raising a, a really important point because the the supervision piece is, is a gradually loosening concept. And mm-hmm. I think you've talked about this quite a bit, that the need for supervision and the extent to which you do it is greatest when the kids are first getting online and, and first using these devices. And then as they demonstrate their readiness and their maturity and so forth, then that gets eased up over time. And it seems to me that one of the key pieces of that is the child's willingness to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, that if the child is clearly squirrely about it, then that should be an indication that there's something to dig into a little bit to make sure that everything's being done properly. And this brings us back to the broader concept of what allies do we have? So clearly the government is trying to be an ally in this by creating boundaries, rules of of behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, But honestly, the social media companies need to do more in order to be effective allies for parents in terms of uh, figuring out ways to change their platforms to make all of this safer. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at the psychological impact on adolescents, that's absolutely critical. I mean, you do see some things happening, right? So, for instance, you see um, Twitter allowing people to mute conversations or to block people. Um, you can, they're, they're exploring the possibility of being able to strip out your user ID from uh, messages so that you can unmention yourself. Um, which is a good thing if there's some kind of organized pile on that's taking place. Um, so I think there is an awareness by the tech companies that they have a product that needs to be palatable to people. And there was actually something I haven't had a chance to follow up on in the Washington Post that suggested that teens are actually stepping away from social media in not insignificant numbers because of some of the toxicity that's out there. Yeah, and I think one thing that you um, that you didn't mention is being able to untag yourself from photos specifically. And I did not, yeah. Yeah, and this is something that I think is is very important also. And um, and I, I hate to bring this up, but I often get tagged in photos that people post that are like promoting something and mm. It, it always drives me nuts when that happens because it is it is clearly a way to get it to show up in my notifications and mm-hmm. I may or may not have any interest in that but that is a um, to me that's a sneaky way 
to get somebody's attention that um, that I personally don't endorse. And I don't think that that is uh, appropriate behavior personally. Now, other people have different ideas, obviously, but being able to untag yourself <laughs> is is good and is is something that certainly makes sense. And I, I appreciate those things that they're doing as well. And I think the way this steps up for both companies and for the government is through litigation and people suing companies and other places for making these things um, possible and and dealing with it that way, which is an expensive process. <laughs> that is that is certainly challenging, also. But I do think that it's um, it's the kind of thing that's going to get media companies to pay more attention to to the harm that they are allowing to happen. I absolutely agree with that, and you know we can have an absolutely reasonable discussion about the impact of trial lawyers yeah. <laughs> in a variety of different ways, but um, it is fair to say that there's been a fair amount of social change that has been driven by litigation, mm -hmm. and so you know it has a role to play in terms of getting greater safety. I mean, look at seatbelts, look at you know all of the various car safety things. A lot of that was driven by the fact that manufacturers didn't want to be sued for mm -hmm. not putting in reasonable accommodations to make things safer. Again, as we said at the top of the show, all of this is harder in the context of speech, you yeah. know, because we, we have a very vigorous um, and well-supported First Amendment in this country. And any effort, even with something so noble as cutting down on harassment or stalking or what have you, deserves the the strict scrutiny that courts give these laws. And that that really, you know, we don't want to get too much into the weeds, but that's one of the things for people to keep in mind is that anytime a state legislature adopts a speech restriction, the federal courts by precedent examine it very strictly and make sure that it is the narrowest language possible in order to give the greatest protection to speech. And that's one of the things that makes dealing with harassment and uh, bullying so complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's such a, a wise way to end. Um, we we really should be working hard to protect that and making it making those laws and rules as narrow as possible, so that people can have um, as much speech as possible. And what I find so amazing here is that if you are it, with this topic, as you said, it's so complex when it relates to online stuff because it it's around that idea of what is tolerated and what is not. And you really have to think because any situation that comes up could be you insert different ingredients into that situation and you get a different result, right? And that that's why it matters so much to, to make it narrow and to take a really hard look at each one of these things as they come out. That's true. Well, it brings to mind the old saying in law, Jethro, that bad facts make bad cases. Yes. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. You know, a single fact can change the outcome for any of these things. And the thing that I will I will offer to close on is this sense that has been percolating up in me for a while that, you know, people obviously are very concerned about the scope of the First Amendment and the protections. And if you don't want legislatures trying to go in and regulate speech because they're concerned about these behaviors, then parents can do their part to cut down on the behaviors. So if they supervise their children and they 
are aware of situations in which their child might be bullying someone or harassing someone or something like that, well, take steps to stop that. And that's going to contribute to better protection for the First Amendment. Yep, absolutely. Very good. All right. Well, on that note, let's wrap up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. We, as we always say, will be interviewing people in the coming weeks to discuss a variety of emerging trends, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions guest questions or topic suggestions if you'd like to follow us on twitter i'm at jethro jones and fred is at Cybertraps. and if you're still listening you must have loved this podcast please leave us a five-star rating we appreciate having you with us today and look forward to having you join us on our next episode there are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it but when do they actually do all of those things you need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.